Hi, I'm Bill Watkins, and welcome to the Good Shared Podcast. The Good Shared Podcast is designed to share all kinds of good stories. Some stories will be spiritual, some more practical, and some will be shared just for entertaining. The Good Shared Podcast is a production of the Creve Hall Church of Christ in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Good Share. We're glad you're with us. Today I have one of my favorite people in the world here. His name is Aubrey Johnson. Aubrey is not just a minister, but a writer, and he specializes in leadership and the things that we need. And Aubrey, we're glad you're here. Great to be with you. And the feeling's mutual. I believe Bill Watkins is the prince of preachers in Nashville and uh, probably, I can't think of anybody I'd rather listen to than Bill Watkins. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Wow. What a, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Tell us tell us about the need for leadership in the church. I know we, we struggle. I was with a group just this week that said one of the biggest challenges they have as an eldership is finding people who are moving into leadership who want to take leadership is becoming very difficult. And then on the other side, there are so many that are in positions of leadership who don't really know what that's about or what that's for. So how do you help them and what are you doing? Well, I think you're right about the importance of leadership and its value. In churches of Christ, we always want to go back to the Bible. We believe in restoring New Testament Christianity. And I don't think there's anything more important to restore than biblical leadership. Because Jesus tells us he was pretty uh, revolted by the way that the Gentiles were leading. And he says, it will not be so in my kingdom. Uh, that's not how we do things. Because people were saying, when I say jump, you say, how high? And they were authoritarian, autocratic, and they weren't really invested in the people that they were supposed to serve. And we ought to be developing people's potential and looking out for their welfare and their growth, not infantilizing them, not making them dependent, but maturing them, helping them to step up to responsibility. So part of it is seeing that biblical role and biblical methodologies and that um, church leaders are more than pious committee men, that they are caring shepherds. There's an administrative part, no doubt. And there is the overseeing of the congregation as well as individuals, but people. It's really about people. It's people growth. We're in the people growing business. So how do we get from the idea of biblical leadership, which is a kind of a servant leadership and coaching people into the right directions in their life, how do we get from there to the corporate board of directors mentality in terms of in terms of leadership, why did we develop that? Why, why did that happen? Do you have any idea? Maybe because it's easier. It is convenient just to come in and have a meeting, but knowing and spending time with the flock just can be a little challenging, especially if uh, you're not as uh, uh, secure in human relationships. And there are some, uh, most of the elders are caring, genuine, loving people. But they may find it more to their their life experience to be in a corporate decision-making mode. And But here's the truth. Nobody wanted to become an elder to sit in a meeting and decide about thermostats and carpet colors. Nobody aspired to that. The fun stuff is helping people. And it takes 
a crazy worldly mindset to transform something so exciting and adventuresome and wonderful into this just grind of the mill, work a day sort of uh, position. It's so much more exciting to do it God's way, so much more fun, so much more effective. So how many books? You've written a number of books on, on leadership and servanthood and, and that sort of thing. Tell me about your books. Well, I've got 20 books, and eight of them are on leadership, and two of them are workbooks that go along with the other books. But uh, the first one that I wrote was Dynamic Deacons, and I've done well over 100 Dynamic Deacon seminars across the country, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I had one go bad. I won't tell you where it was, but it was all my fault. But I have really thoroughly enjoyed that. My wife goes with me. Oftentimes she'll go and she'll talk to the ladies. All right. And she does sessions for the ladies. In fact, they'll start with me. Everybody starts with me. And then if the ladies are included on Saturday, she'll meet with them to talk about qualified, that there are qualifications for deacons, I think elders, ministers, wife. And then she'll talk about privileged, that sometimes we don't understand what a what a distinct privilege it is to be in a position of influence in the lives of other people and to help them move forward in their lives. And then the last one she does is resilient, because it is a tough job. And husbands, uh, if their spouse, their partner is working against them, it becomes doubly hard. So you can lighten their load. You can lead from beside, not by just being out front and being the boss, but by prayer and encouragement and helpfulness. And I, you know what I'd like to see, Bill? What's that? I'd like to see more meetings of women who are elders, deacons, and preachers' wives. If they met once a quarter, oh yeah, maybe the elder's wife one time, the a deacon's wife one time, a preacher's wife one time, and they just study a little bit about that role and how they can encourage and help and serve. I think that would be exciting. That would be groundbreaking, in oh, fact. Yeah. Yeah. My wife, Beverly, is on a Facebook group that she didn't start. Somebody else started it. It was basically preacher's wives who were frustrated and didn't know how to go about doing what they needed to do and putting up with some of the members criticizing their husbands and they didn't know how to react to that, all sorts of things. And so Beverly was asked to be a part of that group, and she's kind of become uh, part of the leadership of that group now in terms of just because she's been at it for so long, about how do you cope with this, and what do you do, how do you, what attitude do you have in doing it? It's been a rich, rich thing. So I, I believe it should be a bigger thing than just the 30 or so people that she has in that group. Yeah. I think it would be a great thing to do. I, I love that. So, and you've done uh, about elderships as well. Yeah, I said, yeah, I, I try to get the deacon, when I'm talking to deacons, I want them to understand that you can't be in an adversarial role with your elders and fulfill your calling. That our job is to lighten their load and help them be able to focus on their shepherding responsibilities. So when I'm, I'm teaching this, right now I have aspiring elders, a, a year-long coaching uh, program online twice a month for men who aspire to, to that position. One thing I tell them is focus on yourself. This is about how you can become the best servant of God you can be. Now, Satan wants to redirect your thinking to those guys, kind of like the uh, 
the Pharisee and the publican, Lord, I thank you that I'm not as other men. Then on the other hand, there's the publican who says, be merciful to me, a sinner. I got enough problems to work on in my life, okay? And if we can have them focus on becoming what they can be, the best of their ability, when God opens the doors, they'll be ready. Satan wants us to spend our time criticizing one another. We need to be praying for one another, appreciating one another. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 through whatever it is, uh, 13 uh, or beyond. Love your elders. Respect your elders. Esteem your elders. No, they're not perfect. You aren't either. Ask your wife. She'll tell you. But can we still love and, and, and esteem them? Let me ask you something. Can a person be a deacon and not have a job to do? Can you have a generalist? Maybe that's their job. They're a generalist. Can we call on you? Are you ready unto every good work? <laughs> Personally, believe that it works. It's more satisfying for the individual. It's more fulfilling when you match their gift with a need in the in the church. And that may change from decade to decade or from year to year. There may be different different things. But I do believe there is wisdom in having them paired with a specific task and telling them why that task is important. Because sometimes we give them a job and they don't understand how crucial their role is in, in the working of the whole. So I think that's part of what leaders do is help people understand and feel appreciated. Ray Frizzell was one of my favorite elders. He's passed on now. He used to say this, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, never give somebody a job. Give them a dream. Amen. And if you give them a dream, they will work forever. If you give them a job, it's always hard to do. Emerson had the same thought when he talked about what kills men's souls is job work. And what he meant was that if it's not your area of giftedness, it's not your area of passion, and you're just doing it to sustain your existence, it's a, it's a pretty bleak life. But instead, what happens when you are the match, the chemistry is really on target, fantastic things happen. Oh, yeah. Let me switch gears just a little bit, and I'm going to ask you this. Why do you think God gave the church elders? Because we need elders. <laughs> I think sometimes people don't step up because they don't see the wisdom of God's plan. Sometimes people want to serve, but they don't want to be a deacon. Well, are you smarter than God? God says the church needs deacons. God says the church needs elders, people who will not just do good things, but put themselves on the line to be accountable for certain responsibilities and certain roles. And I, I think we need to trust God's wisdom. And when you get an invitation to serve, to, to me, it's an invitation from God. And if you turn that down, you probably ought to have a pretty good reason. And you better believe that you can be more useful somewhere else. But it's really about being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How can I be the most useful? And that's where I need to be. And if the congregation calls, I, I think you're hearing God calling, and you need to accept unless there's some extenuating reason. I have a thought, and that is that when God talks about elders, he gives three basic descriptions in terms of their title. One of them is elder, which means obviously a mature person. One of them is an overseer, which means they have vision and 
and even more than that, they have a, a real task that they do with the congregation. And, and then one of them is shepherd. And, and here's my, my question. In the average person's life today, the concept of overseer as it was used, I think, in that context is, is rarely seen in our time. Elder comes from the elders of the gates that sat and were the respected men in the community and had the maturity. And shepherd, well, I don't really know very many shepherds in my life that are around. So the, those are very important concepts that sometimes don't relate directly to this person's life. Is there something in modern day that would be a good illustration for being an elder that that people might relate to out of the 21st century? I call them abundant life trainers. I think they're spiritual life coaches. I think the shepherding is the the dominant aspect. An elder should convey wisdom, cumulative wisdom, evaluated life experience, tested values. But Solomon said a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. And I really believe the word shepherd needs to be used more because I think primarily it's about involvement with people, loving people, praying for people, coaching people. Because most people, they know better than they do. They need instruction, but most of the time they need a a little more clarity, a little more responsibility, more than they need uh, just to start from ground zero. I love that picture of coaching. I love that thought of being a life coach, a spiritual life coach, for lots of reasons, but one of them is you cannot sit in a room and make decisions for the whole church and be a life coach. You, you, I mean, you have to make some decisions in that room every once in a while, but coaching is a direct connection between the person or people that you're coaching and yourself. You, you, can't, you can't be separated from them and be a coach. No coach can just sit back in his office and say, here's a memo on what I expect you to do today. That's not the way that works. Yeah, being a coach, what makes a successful coach? It's, it's caring about people. You need some competency in your sport, but I think caring about them as human beings is important. It's just sad when you have a coach who wants to win and doesn't, you know, everything is foul and and there's a mischief going on. Uh, instead, you want somebody who's going to help them succeed in the classroom, succeed in their character building, succeed in their relationships with girlfriends and wives. And I think that's critical. But, yeah, coaches comes from the idea of a vehicle that transported people from point A to point B. So then it began to be used figuratively in sports and taking that a skinny freshman and, you know, building him up and he's getting stronger and faster and smarter and, and playing well, you're developing them. And I think the same thing is true in the church. Uh, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And our job is to help strengthen them in the word of God so that they can meet life's demands. That's why I call elders abundant life. That was Jesus purpose statement for why he come came. And if that's Jesus' purpose statement, I I would suppose his assistant shepherd should have the same purpose. (laughs) I like that. I was just listening some time back. Coach had been hired by a major university in the SEC. I'll give a plug to the SEC. But he'd been been hired as, and, and he's a winning coach. I mean, he really is. And so they paid him lots of money to come. 
but he had been there for a short time when he said that my job is not primarily to win games. My job is to develop young men. And he's a winning coach, but he yeah. says the main thing is we're developing men here. And I, I thought that's the right attitude. That's where we are. And, and as, as an eldership, then it seems to me that if we are, if elderships are life coaches and ministers are assisting in that same process, we're really trying to move people from where they are to a better place, which means that it's all about people. It's all about people and the Lord and, and getting them in touch with what that's about. So but we're moving them toward eternity, but at the same time, we're moving them toward maturity. Yeah. So both of those are going on simultaneously. That's Jesus' dual vision. And if leaders abandon either part of that, then we end up losing our way. The church is concerned about the future of the members and their destiny, but also concerned about their lives that bring glory to God and that attract others when lived well. What can elderships and congregations do to cause people to want to be leaders? What can elderships do to, to make that happen? It seems to me we're in this perfect storm of, of society and culture right now that believes that if you believe anything specifically, you're a bigot. Uh, if you believe that it's always right, then you're out of touch. And then at the same time, and I, I don't want this to be offensive to anybody, but it seems to me that a lot of men are abandoning their leadership capacity because they're afraid of being called a chauvinist, afraid of being called someone who is, you know, uh, just domineering and, and abusive. Micromanager. Yeah. How do you move people who are in that kind of culture to the desire for leadership and, and the process of it? What would you say? Well, as far as attracting more people, first of all, just try smiling once in a while. That probably <laughs> would do a lot of good. I think the golden time that you enjoy before and after services, uh, elders need to be, that's just low fruit hanging there. You come in and see people and chat with them and know what's going on. Being, being present is really, really cool. But the, the problems come when we have what I call disconnected influence. And that's the boardroom leadership style. And then when you're not close to people, it's easier for them in that distance to become more critical. And the more we can spend time with people, then we're going to take their needs and their wants and desires into consideration instead of trying to lead from an point of isolation and what you get is is closed-mindedness but it's well-intended closed-mindedness but it is it's closed-mindedness and elders are supposed to have relationships why they're supposed to have uh, children why because they'll connect them to this generation they're supposed to have wives because it'll connect them to the women of the congregation they're supposed to be hospitable because it connects them to the people throughout the church all of these connections god has put that in the instructions to help somebody really have this wonderful sphere of influence and if you disconnect from all of that and neglect your family and you spend all of your time in meetings then somehow we're undermining God's intention for what this job was supposed to be. And I do think that the more that people know the quality of the kind of men that actually serve as elders the more they aspire to be like them. I, I read a story back a number of years ago now 
about a church in Chicago, and on a Sunday morning, there was a man, that, an old man, that was serving the Lord's Supper to the church that morning, and he came by the pew where uh, a man and his son were sitting, and and the father said to the son, "I want you to be like that man." He stood up to Al Capone when Al Capone was running this town, and he had death threats all the time and helped bring Al Capone down, I want you to be like him. I think that our young people need somebody to look up to. And I think when they know the quality of people who have said, Lord, if this church isn't what you want it to be, blame me. I'm taking the responsibility for this church. That's a noble and frightening thing. And they've taken it with a smile. I want to be like that. I want to be that kind of person. I, I, I just think, that the more they, you're right, the more we make those connections, the more people are influenced not just by what they're taught, but what they catch when they get around us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. People aspire to what they see, and that's one of the things that draws us to Christ. And when we see Christ in others, that drawing power is it, it's still at work. So, absolutely. Are you working on a book now? Bold Faith. Bold faith. Bold faith. Tell me about it. It's bold faith in a disapproving world, which is exactly what you were talking exactly about right. uh, a moment ago, that you have to have the confidence of your convictions. And the Bible tells us to give an account of the hope within us with gentleness and respect. That's that bold faith. And it's not being belligerent. It's not being ugly. But just the boldness that was exemplified by Stephen. Have you ever read a book, a whole book on Stephen? No. Well, this is a whole book on Stephen. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and Stephen is amazing. You look at his life, that brewing storm against Christians and the church, and then he becomes the, the victim, but he's given an opportunity to preach. And nobody came and said, good, good sermon, preacher. But instead, he lost his life. It looked like the failed life, but it was a high point. A watershed moment in the church when he died, there was, as a result of his sermon, it started with, with the storm, and then there was the sermon, and then there was the spark of global evangelism. You couldn't stop people. They saw his courage, and they were emulating it and going out there, and Philip, and even Paul, the last person on earth you thought would ever have become a Christian, who was consenting unto this uh, that holding the coats, making sure they don't get wrinkles in them while they pummel the body of this good saint. But uh, it's it's I'm excited about this book. That's powerful. When is it coming out? Probably January, uh, probably the first of the year. And I just think that probably more than than some methodology, we just need courage right now. I agree with just that. courage. Just speak up. I agree with that. You know, it strikes me too that sometimes. It's not our successes in terms of the way the world looks at it that gets the world's attention. It's when the storm comes and everything's going bad and you're getting struck by lightning or stones or whatever it happens to be and you keep your focus on Christ and you keep your focus on hope and you keep your focus on the positive things that uh, God is in store for you, that the best of your life is in front of you, even if it is cancer, even if it is a heart attack, even if it is uh, persecution, even if there may be times where your family rejects you or whatever's going on, and you keep an attitude of faith and hope, that gets the world's attention. Amen. And Stephen did it. And, and that's going to make 
so much of a difference. I'm, I'm looking forward to that book. I can't wait to read it. That'll be great. That'll Leaders be great. need a calming presence, a yes, joyful calming presence, and it makes all all the difference. And, you know, they looked in Stephen's face, and what did they see? To them, it looked like the face of an angel. And he wasn't just raging at those who were stoning at him. But what did they say? I think they saw... I think they saw a couple of things. I think I think they saw holy love, determination, resolve. There's a lifeline in all that for us. Amen. I mean, there really is. Uh, I mentioned Ray Frizzell earlier, and again, there's a lot of reasons I admire that man. But uh, I can remember when I first moved here, there were some severe issues that this congregation was facing, and I mean, really, really potentially destructive things that they were facing. And I, I can remember the eldership, I would be sitting in the meetings with them, and they were getting obviously down, like, what do we do? We've discussed and discussed and discussed, and we've worked and worked and worked, and we don't know whether we're making any progress or not. And you could see them just getting downcast. And Ray rarely said anything in an elders meeting until it was important. And, and uh, they would be down, and everybody would be quiet, and he would say, brothers, you, you got to remember this isn't our church. This is the Lord's church. If we commit ourselves to doing what He wants us to do, He'll take care of us. And if all will be well. We don't have to get down like this. And and all of a sudden, everybody is full of hope again. You need that. Every, every leadership needs that. Amen. Aubrey, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for doing any Any word for anybody out there that might be... Uh, considering being a leader or considering becoming an elder or a deacon, any word of encouragement or advice that you have for them? Well, there's tools and resources out there like Dynamic Deacons or The Deacon's Wife. Uh, there's a book for leaders, wives, for any woman who wants to help her husband succeed in life. Uh, effective elders, successful shepherds, uh, organized overseers. I've got some tools on AubreyJohnsonMinistries.com. AubreyJohnsonMinistries.com. So there, there's stuff out there. If you're interested, reach out to Bill, reach out to Aubrey, and we'll help you get connected. All right. Thank you, Aubrey. God bless you.